0: There's an interesting thing going on here with Moses. Uh, We'll just get right into it, that Moses has been on the far side of humanity for like 40 years. He was chased out of Israel, or chased out of Egypt. We know his story, some of us do, we've seen the movies. He goes away from uh, Egypt because he tried to do something right. And now he's in Midian. He's at the far side of the world, uh, far side of humanity, working for his father-in-law, counting sheep. And then he gets pulled aside by this burning bush and it talks to him. And that's weird. And, but this bush talks back to him and says these things to him, I have heard the cry of my people. I have seen the injustice done to them by Pharaoh's hand. And it not only hears and sees this bush, which is the voice of God says, and I'm going to do something about it. It's one thing for people to hear and see something and turn the channel. It's another thing for us to hear, see, and then actually get off, off of our butts and do something about it. What we see here in, in the first part of Exodus, it's a f- pretty fantastic thing for Moses to hear. It's a reminder of that to him that God actually cares. God hears, God sees, God's moving. He's actually going to do something about this. It's a reminder to Moses that this God is cares, but it's also a reminder to Moses that this God isn't as far off and as angry as he thinks he is. God is moving towards. He's moving to rescue. Imagine you're Moses. You're a little bit doubtful. You tried to do something good. You got the door slammed on your fingers and you you got kicked out of your homeland. You're thinking that there's no use in doing anything as for any any long, any more. (laughs) I'll try this again. You're thinking there's no use in doing anything ever again because you got shut out the last time. Why try? So this is challenging to Moses for a few reasons. It goes against his very concept of what he thought God was like. And it's going to take courage for him to actually step foot back in Pharaoh's court where he was kicked out and chased out like he was a murderer. So there's some struggles here. Moses is afraid. He says to Moses, uh, I saw a translation of the Bible that replaced every behold with look buddy, and it's hilarious, uh, and, and it says, try it. Next time you see behold in your scriptures, say look buddy or look pal, which is pretty close to what it means. But he he's says back to God, look pal, I'm not good at speaking. And the Lord says back to him, behold, look buddy, I'll go with you. And that's what takes Moses back to him, back to the place where he was so afraid. The very name that God gives Moses to go back to Egypt, back to humanity, back and try again, was the word Yahweh. We can go back and forth, and scholars have, for thousands and thousands of years and what that might mean, but the very word of that means it's breath. It sounds like a breath. God was telling Moses that you're going to go back into this dangerous place, but don't worry about it. I'm with you. Yahweh, I'm closer than your actual breath. You might think I'm far apart, you might think I'm distant and cold and don't respond, but I'm actually closer than you'll ever imagine. So Moses goes back with courage, a little bit of nervousness, but what takes him back is the presence of God. And then God says this in Exodus in the next chapter 4, I think it'll be on the screen. I'm going to overwhelm Drake with a bunch of slides, so have grace that they don't come up there. It's my fault. He just saw it this morning. It's on the screen. It says this. Yes. Then the Lord said to the Israelites, I am the Lord. This is what he's telling Moses to say to them. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, I will be your God, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord." When you look at this, there's four basic promises in this passage. God is telling the Israelites four things here. He says, I will take you out. Not like the mafia where they take people out, but he will take them out of Egypt. They're in Egypt. They're under the yoke of the Egyptians. They're building bricks all day. Their, Their work just got harder because of Moses. But God is saying to them, I will take you out of this place. Then the next promise, I will rescue you. The next one, I will redeem you these people who knew themselves as the people of God, that's what they called themselves, are now going to be redeemed. They thought that they were useless. They thought they were put aside. They thought God had forgotten them. And now they're being redeemed. And then God says, I will take you with me. These four promises would find their way, would wind their way into a wedding ceremony later in time. The Hebrew groom would say to his wife, I will take you out, I will rescue you, I will redeem you, and I will take you with me. This is a sign not just of God telling them something, but God binding himself to these people in such a unique way that he will never, ever leave them. The next 14 chapters in Exodus is God's way of showing them how much he means what he just promised they're stuck in Egypt so we have the plagues every single one of those plagues was god's proving himself to the to the jewish people that he is better than the gods of egypt there was a god of frogs there was a god of the nile there was a god of weather and then every one of those plagues went against the very thing that the egyptians worshiped and so god says to them i am bigger than this god i am bigger than the god of the nile and then finally the night of passover I'm bigger than even Pharaoh. I can touch his family too. And then the the Egyptians finally, after Passover, let the people of Israel go. And then the last time, they're standing on the shore of the Red Sea. And and Pharaoh's army changed their mind again and is coming to to take Israel back, probably to kill them, push them into the sea. And then finally God shows up one last time, spreads the sea, stops Pharaoh's army, and they get to the other side of the Red Sea. They walk on dry land. God was proving something to his people. He's a man of his word. He's a God of his word. He promises something, he will do it. And so what we see in the first part of Exodus is God showing them his character. This is the foundation of his relationship with Israel. And then if he gets to the base of Sinai, this is the first time God has spoken aloud to people. He says this in in Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. He's telling them how, he's reminding them what he's done for them. You yourselves have seen how I carried you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me and keep fully my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. That word treasured possession was also wedding language. We see a marriage between the human and the divine happening here. God mm-hmm. is binding himself to his people in a unique way saying, I'm never, ever going to leave you. I will always be with you. And that confidence of the presence that you, I'm always with you will take you through the challenges and lead you into a calling. If you had a, a bulletin this morning, it would be on there, that, those three things. The character of God, the challenge of the relationship, and the calling that we all live into. Because we see this beginning to map up in the book of Exodus. We start to see this relationship, and it's first and foremost what we notice is that there's God's character. First thing about God's character, He's actively pursuing the people of Israel, trying to get their attention. There was plagues, there was was water out of rocks, there was breakfast that showed up on the ground every morning, dinner every night. There were sandals, there was a, a covering of God's glory called the Shekinah glory that was with them by cloud of day, by fire at night. There was a reminder of God's presence. He's not going anywhere. He proves himself over and over again. Remember his promise, he's taking them away from Egypt. He's bringing them into the promised land. He is with them. He's not leaving them. It's a relationship that's based solely in God's character above anything else. Character means you're going to do what you promised. Character is how you view the world. Character is what you are when no one's looking. Character, uh, the character of God in this sense. I'm going to take you out, and I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to bring you into the promised land. In Song of Solomon, we see this relationship between God and Israel uh, displayed between the woman of Song of Solomon and the man. The man that, that is pursuing her. There's two men in Song of Solomon. There's a king and there's a man, and they're both vying for the attention of this woman. The king is trying to get this attention by force. Saying that I, I will take you whenever you want. Whenever I want, I'm a, you are a possession. And then you have this man. And, in essence, in chapter 2, promises her the same things that, that uh, God promises Egypt. In chapter 2, verse 9, he pursues her. In verse 3, he provides for her. In verse 10, he calls her his darling, which is a way of saying, I redeem you. He brings her protection from dangers. He affirms her. And then, in in verse 5 of chapter 2, he takes her with him. We see the same movements as this man pursuing this woman as God did when he pursued his people of Israel. And so when we look at Song of Solomon and we look at our relationship with Christ, we see the same movements between us and him. There's promises that he gives us. And in chapter 6... We see the effects of those promises on this woman. Follow along with me. Six verses three, verse three. I am my beloved's and he is mine, as he browses uh, among the lilies. There are no others in this picture. There is a confidence that she says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, or ever the translation might say it, what's going on is there's a security in this relationship. It's a security that flows from chapter two. This is a radical devotion that she begins to see in this man. In the culture that she's in, she's a woman, she's not very valued in this culture, yet she, by relationship of this man, she feels valued when all of her friends are being tossed aside by whatever man wants to come along. She's not just one of many. You look at Solomon, 600 wives, 1,000 concubines, or however many he had. He had a lot of women in his life, and he took however many he wanted at one time. There were many women, but to this woman and this man, there was a special relationship. You're the only one. You could say that she was a treasured possession. Remember what God said to Israel, you will be my treasured possession. In this passage, this man takes the form of God in this picture, this poem, and pursues and says, you will be my treasured possession, and I will be yours. There's a presence involved there. He will be with her. It's the same promise that God gives Moses in Exodus 33, Moses is having a hard time in the desert. The people have done something stupid. And now God is saying, I don't want to be a part of this. And Moses goes and he changes God's mind. And then he gets God to promise him something in Exodus uh, 33, verse 14. And then finally God comes and says, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And not only will my presence go with you, because my presence is going with you, I will give you rest. Moses in the midst of the turmoil that life was bringing him, in the desert where it's hot, where it's thirsty, where it's gross and dusty, think of the desert for 40 years, in the midst of all of that, what is the, because of God's presence, you will have rest. Moses wouldn't go anywhere until he had that. David had the same kind of promise. He sought it after his whole life. David had the same kind of life Moses did. Written off by his father, his dad went, oh yeah, I got one more son out there, but he's the youngest, why would you ever want him? And then Samuel says, bring David in, and he's anointed king, and then he's hunted for his life. David wanted, could have anything in his world, he can ask for it, he's the king. But Psalm 27 says this, the one thing I ask for, Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the lord and to seek him in his temple for in that day trouble will in that day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling he will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and and set me high upon a rock what's david asking for at a time of trouble presence he's asking for that presence that god will not leave him when all the rest of the world seems to be tossing him aside This woman in Song of Solomon is seeking the same thing from this man, the presence, a presence that comes from a character that says you're going to do what you said you were going to do all along. And she has it, and it changes the way she looks. She is a more confident person because of it. And it's a picture of Christ's relationship with us. Look what she says in in, in 9, the second half of 9. The young women saw her. And called her blessed, the queens and concubines. So the other people in Solomon's harem saw this woman and praised her. Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? Have you ever been on a dark night away from the city and you looked up and you saw everything up there? Uh, We were at Malibu three weeks ago, and we went out to the, its called the outer dock. We all laid flat on a dock and looked up and counted satellites. It was so clear. The stars, it was wonderful. And this is what she's saying. Majestic like the stars in procession, bright as the sun, majestic like the moon, the promise that was given to Moses. The promise that was given to David, the promise that we see on display here in Song of Solomon is the same promise we get from Jesus. Matthew 5, it's Jesus' Magna Carta of his faith. This is everything that Jesus was about in one chapter. He says, blessed are the, we spent like eight weeks on it back in the fall. Blessed are the poor spirit, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are persecuted. The word blessed means I'm with you. My presence is beside you. I'm on your side in this. It's the same promise we see here. And the promise of being being with God and the presence of God with you at all those times has an effect. In Matthew 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and give light to everyone in the house. When you live out the presence of God that is with you, You begin to be noticed by the people all around you. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we see this. And it says, because your nearness with God, you give forth an aroma of Christ. People start to notice, you start to smell differently. Maybe it's your deodorant, maybe it's your cologne. Or maybe it's the fact that you know that this God that you follow is never, ever, ever going to leave you at any point. This is the promise that we have, and it's rooted in God's character. And because of God's character, we are empowered to live into the challenge that we all face. There's a, in, in this passage in Song of Solomon, there's an empowered woman here because of the promise that she's received. She's empowered, and our culture has a hard time with empowered women. Why do you think there's controversy over Wonder Woman? It's ridiculous. This woman is empowered. She's confident. She's living into her calling. And this represents a, a, a sort of ideal for us as a church, for women, that you can be confident, that there is a confidence that you're allowed to have, no matter how much society says that you can't have it. You're allowed to be confident and empowered. In Song of Solomon, it shows us a picture of the church. Uh, it, it looks how, look how she's described in verses 4 you are beautiful as Tirzah. We don't get it. My darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. This is a guy trying to compliment a woman, so it's going to sound a little funny. We often try and fail. Tirzah was a city, the city that Jeroboam made the capital of of Israel. Uh, It means pleasing. Jerusalem is the beautiful city. They would say things like about Jerusalem that meant this, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, talking about Jerusalem here. God has shown forth, and so people would look at Jerusalem as they walked by and went, wow, that is a beautiful city. In Isaiah 62, it says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God this is talking about Jerusalem have you ever flown into Seattle and the pilot is gracious and he takes you around like the tour he comes in over over the sound and you look down you see West Seattle you see Alki and he goes north and he comes in over over the channel here and you can see Ballard if you're on the other side of the plane or you can see down into Queen Anne and then you come around and you get the space needle and you're flying right over Columbia Tower or you're just you're getting the city tour right and so you say to the person who's visiting, Oh, there's that restaurant, there's that restaurant, you should go there. It's beautiful, right? And so what he's saying is, You're beautiful like a city. Doesn't really translate well, but a city in those days were strong. A city had a wall, a city was powerful. If you lived in a city, there was protection there. And so he's complimenting this woman, saying, You are strong. You are powerful. And then he throws in that line at the end as majestic as troops with banners. Okay, you're majestic like an army with cool flags. The only other place this word is, or this phrase is used, is in Habakkuk, and this will muddy the waters even more. When the Babylonian army was marching towards Israel, it said that same word you are like the army. Coming towards Jerusalem, army of Babylon was very, very strong and mighty and confident. This man is looking at this woman saying, you are confident. You have a calling. You have strengths, powers, and gifts. And I kind of like it. It's good. It, it, what hes The basic line that he's saying is, you are like an army coming to conquer my heart. And I dig it. Do we understand that line a little bit better? That's a little better one for us to say. There's fear and trembling in this man's voice when he looks at this woman because there is a ton of confidence here. Guys, when you made that first phone call to that girl, were you nervous? It's okay to say yes. When I asked Carrie out for the first time after we dated a little bit before, uh, I dated, we broke up, my bad, and then we started dating again, I self-corrected, There was a nervousness in my voice because Carrie is a confident woman. There's a nervousness in that, and it's good. Confidence is a good thing to have. This woman is a confident person. And finally, in verse 5, he says, turn your eyes away from me, for you have confused me. He sees the confidence. He sees the power. It completes him. Not only does it complete him, she knows it. She knows that she completes him, and she's fine with it as well. There's a a certainty uh, that doesn't present to be weak in her. We see women in our fairy tales, and where are they? They're trapped in a tower, powerless, waiting for the man to come rescue her, right? That's how we view these kind of things. But here, this woman isn't trapped in a tower. Because of the confidence that she has, she is the tower, And this man says, you are strong, you are courageous, you are the tower, and pretty much you're coming to rescue me. It's a switch in in roles that we see in Song of Solomon. And there's a couple applications to this. For the church, for all of us, when we bask in the love and the presence of Christ, we'll have that aroma that 2 Corinthians talks about. But not only that, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 continues and says, we'll have a confidence growing in us because of our ongoing transformation in Christ. This creates a belief that the closer we are to Jesus, the more his presence shines in our lives, the more we will have transformation. And in that transformation, there's going to be challenges, but that's perfectly okay. There's a confidence that even in the midst of those challenges the presence of christ will still not leave us for the individuals there's another there's another application just because we're called to be meek doesn't mean that we have to be weak and i didn't mean those for those to rhyme but just because we say blessed are the meek doesn't mean that you have to bow down and just cowtail to everyone and be a weak person that's not the promise that we're supposed to live into this confidence and strength is a confidence and strength that's, bele- that's displayed best in service, not bravado. It's seen in elevating others and not elevating yourself. It's given out of abundance and not giving out of living small. When you see the love that Christ has for you, when you see the presence that he has for you, that he's with you constantly, it's okay to take confident steps in faith. It's okay to live into the abundance of love that he has for you instead of being timid and weak about it. It's a challenge to take a risk. It's a challenge to live like you're loved like this to live like you've been given the grace that you claim, the grace that we sing about. It's a challenge to see God as someone who's for you instead of against you. It's a challenge to live into that confidence. It's a challenge to see yourself as God sees you, loved completely, without faults, without your hangups, without your disqualifications. Because when we say yes to Christ, Like what happens in Song of Solomon, what happens in 2 Corinthians, what happens in Matthew 5, you're given a new look. You're given a renewed identity, which should bring us to the same place this woman is in the end of chapter 6. There's a calling that she lives into. It should lead us to a place of confidence The problem that we face in our world, in our lives, in our relationship with Christ, is we like to define ourselves by everything but what we should define ourselves. We consider ourselves definitions. The problem with definitions is that they're closed. What you define yourself is all you will be. The Bible doesn't define you. It doesn't say you're this and this is all you will ever be. The Bible describes you. It says, you're an ongoing thing. You're an ongoing perfection. You are in motion. You're a description. You're described as holy. You're described as a saint. You're described as deeply loved. No matter what you define yourself as here, you're described as something completely different in Scripture. You're useful. You're loved. You're called. You're a saint. No matter where you've been, The challenge in that is living like you're loved, living to your description. This woman knows that she's loved. This woman has strength from knowing that she's loved, and she has confidence from that that knowledge. And here's what it comes down to. In chapter one, if you remember, she describes herself as a woman who's just merely working in a field. She makes an excuse because her skin is darker from being sun scorched. She might have skin damage. And she makes an excuse and she says, don't look at me like that. I'm still beautiful. In in chapter 1, she has that. She makes excuses. In chapter 6, she's still working in the field. Chapter 6, verse 11, she went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley. She's still working. She's still tending to the fields. To see if the vines had budded or the prom- pomegranates were in bloom. Then in verse 12, before I realize it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. The Hebrew word there for desire is a fun word. I want you to say it with me. It's nephesh. Say it Nefesh. This side Nefesh. Okay, it's the word nefesh. Good job. It has an array of meanings. Let me tell you what they all mean. Uh, it. it it means soul, life, self, creature, person, appetite, mind, living being, desire, emotion, passion, that which breathes, the breathing substance or being, soul, the inner being of a person. The first time we see the word nefesh, it's in Genesis chapter 1. Whenever God brings something into existence, there's the word nefesh, when he breathes life into human beings. It's the word nefesh. This is the life at the core of your being. So this woman is tending the fields, whatever she's been doing for the longest time. She's realized that she's loved deeply through all the challenges that she sees in this culture. She's still loved deeply. She has a confidence. And then in what she's doing, it's breathing life into her And it elevates her beyond just doing the mundane. It elevates her to a different position. She's riding on chariots now in her dream. Chariots, if you go back in Song of Solomon, chariots are what kings rode on. Chariots meant power, esteem. Chariots, she's no longer just working in a field. She's royalty because of the confidence because of her calling. She now sees herself as God sees her, as royalty. It tells us this lesson. How you see yourself today will determine what you do. How you describe yourself today will determine what you do. You're called, you're loved, but if you don't see yourself as that you will never do what you dream of doing. You're called, you're loved, you're described as holy. And when you see yourself the same way God sees you, it'll transform everything about yourself. You no longer have to strive for his attention. You no longer have to work for his grace. You no longer have to hide because you think he's angry at you. He's neither of those. The same promises that he says to Moses are the same promises that he says to you. I'm with you. I will rescue you. I will take you with me. And most importantly, I'll never leave. You'll have my presence. When we possess the confidence of God's presence, we possess the ability to do exactly what he calls us to do. It propels us forward in our life. A couple weeks ago, I was in California, and we were in this upper room of a church, and there was a, a thing that we were all going to go take part in downstairs in a couple hours, and we were sitting in this room, and a friend of mine jumped on the piano, and we had this prayer time, and singing like flashback hymns. It was great, uh, but then as we're sitting there in, in this upper room, I was standing, and I was, had my hands out like this, and I started getting pictures of my son Judah. You'll see him today. He's the one with the bear that can't leave his side. Uh, he, uh, and, and I started thinking, man, I like that kid. He's fun. I love him. Uh, I love him a lot. And then my mind, you just kind of let your mind go in this, and you just get these pictures. And then I started thinking, the same way I love that kid was the same way my dad loved me completely. There is nothing Judah could do to make me love him any less. Uh, that I'm, I'm proud of him. And I started thinking of the way my dad loved us kids. In the same way that I look at Judah, my dad looked at me at one point. And then this man comes up from behind me, this man and and his wife, and they put their hands on me, they're praying for me, and his wife leans in and says, just like your dad loved you, God loves you in that same way. She had no idea what I was thinking about. It was a crazy, like, where have you been, get out of my head kind of moment. But the Holy Spirit was communicating with that couple that this needed to be said to me. As much as my dad loved me, as much as I love my kid, is the same way that God looks at me. When we grasp that, when you grasp how much your God loves you and chases you down, it changes the way you look at your life. It becomes freeing. There's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore there's nothing you can do to make him love you any less it 's completely it's holy it 's fully you can't earn more of it because you have all of it you can't let it take it you can't it can't be taken away from you, no matter how disqualified you say you are, no matter how disqualified even other churches say you are. No matter how disqualified your co workers, your spouses, your families, you are loved completely. And because of that, we find ourselves in good company, like this woman in Song of Solomon, living into the covenant that he'll never leave us. And we have confidence because of it. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the power of your love that it can transform us and move us and change us. God, we thank you for the way you loved us, that you didn't leave us hanging here all by yourself, but you said you loved us enough to come after us. And when you came, you came with the name Emmanuel, which simply means God with us. Your presence is among us. Lord, when you ascended to heaven, you gave us your spirit to come live with us and you gave us another promise no matter how far we go into this world I'll be with you Lord we thank you for that love we thank you for that grace and Lord may that love and grace transform the way we live and give us a confidence that we're loved completely may it free us from the definitions that we have of ourselves and may we live into the description that you gave us